Anybody make any New Year's resolutions this year? I know we, we kind of downplay those. We kind of, once you get old enough and you have enough of them, kind of go away. I've heard the New Year's resolutions to be called the to-do list for the first week of the new year. And then no more. If you want to know how to be very efficient with making New Year's resolutions, just get out your list from last year and start on it again. Right? That's usually about how it goes. One person described New Year's resolutions as casual promises to myself under which I have no legal obligation to fulfill. It's kind of how they kind of come and go. Don't, don't meet with a lawyer and write up a contract with yourself for your New Year's resolutions. That, I don't think that will help it. No. But uh, another way of looking at it is uh, something that goes in one year and out the other. I do encourage you, though, to resolve yourself to live a life of greater meaning for God's glory and for your good. Both of those work together. It is for our good that we live for God's glory. And it is for God's glory that we live truly for our good, and that is in serving Him and Him alone. And I do believe that when empowered by the Holy Spirit and with regular repentance, setting ourselves anew back to what we have committed to accomplish, that our resolutions can be significant. One of my great heroes of the faith, Jonathan Edwards, is well known for his 70 resolutions of how he would live his life for God's glory. And he would start out each week reminding himself of what those were. We come back to Matthew 2. And and I'm excited of how the Lord has led us into the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. It, It worked out perfectly for us to be in Matthew 1 for the Christmas season. And I think that it works out very well for us to enter into Matthew 2 here. This morning, although it's a story that usually gets stuck uh, back there with Advent, but it's a story of the wise men and their visit to King Jesus. So we pick up in Matthew 2, looking at verses 1 through 12 here this morning, where we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We look this morning at how there is a new king in town with the advent of Jesus' birth. You know, there's plenty of uh, unimpressive kingdoms. I mean, we have Burger King, which is king of the burgers, I guess. It's, it's probably my favorite of, you know, the local, uh, not the local, but the uh, chain restaurants. Michael Jackson was known as the king of pop. I'm not quite sure but why, but apparently he was the greatest performer or so. If, if a person cares about who's the greatest performer, it's a very small kingdom, I guess. You can be the king of the road, the obnoxious driver that expects everyone to yield to you, right? You could be homecoming king. Do we have any homecoming kings here? There we go, homecoming king. You know, with the, that guy that has a homecoming court, which is high schoolers in uncomfortable outfits that are there to do their bidding, I guess, for that one evening. How about the king of all kings? That's who was born in Bethlehem. That's who these magi, these wise men, were seeking out. He's worthy of all people. Not just whoever's on the road, wherever's in the homecoming court, worthy of all people of every type to resolve to be in his court, to do his bidding. For 2023, I want to encourage you to resolve in every area of your life to welcome the reign of King Jesus. We're introduced here to Herod the king. This would be Herod Agrippa. The term Herod is kind of like the term Caesar. It represented the Herodian dynasty. So um, it was a matter of he was the first, I believe, of the, of the Herodians. So he passed down his rule to the next person and to the next person. This Herod Agrippa was quite the paranoid and vicious ruler. He was riding the tiger, if you will. You know, that dictator that, that uh, was afraid to let go of power because once you get off the tiger, the tiger is going to eat you. So he, he actually um, had uh, several members of his own family, including some of his wives, murdered out of a paranoia that they were going to try to unseat him. Herod was partly Jewish, and he leaned on this when it suited him. He was actually installed as king of Judea by the Roman government. That were, was, this was under the Roman Empire. They were actually ruling the area, and so he was established as the king of Judea. It, there's kind of a little dig toward Herod here, I believe, when it says that um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Herod the king. 
kind of like, well, his days were numbered, of course. This is in contrast with the eternal reign of Christ. When it comes to these wise men, it's, we actually know, we, we know less about them than we actually know about them. We've made a lot of assumptions about these wise men. We've assumed there's three of them. That's only because they brought three gifts in particular. Uh, there's, there's no telling how many there were. We, we do know that it was probably a large enough entourage that the city of Jerusalem knew that they arrived. Um, we also uh, assume something when we see that they, they were there to worship him. We're not really, uh, it, it, we can't really confirm that they had a biblical understanding of who Jesus truly was. Um, but there is some wondering if the remnant of the ministry of Daniel in Babylon was, was in these men's knowledge, the Magi's knowledge, these wise men's knowledge of a coming king that would reign as king of the Jews. The fact is they were respected travelers showing up looking for a newly born king of the Jews, and it created a stir. Herod is concerned. And we see that when Herod is concerned about something, all Jerusalem is concerned about something, right? They're not very comfortable when Herod starts to worry about getting unseated. We notice in verses uh, 3 through 6 that Herod knew that the king of the Jews that the Magi were looking for was the Christ. I mean, how sad we see here that Herod, they're coming looking for the king of the Jews, and so he asks the chief priests and the scribes, to explain to him where the Christ was to be born. So Herod knew who it was that they were looking for. It's also sad that we see uh, that, well, let me just mention the chief priests here would have been members of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a very political um, branch of the religious leaders of the Jews. They were being very entwined with Herod's rule and the Roman rule. They wanted to keep the status quo because it kept them in power and it kept them with money in their pockets uh, for temple, from temple taxes and things like that. And they quote Micah 5.2 when they refer back to Herod telling him that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah when we're quoting, speaking to Bethlehem, that they are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Herod summons these wise men to find out when the star appeared. <clears throat> I, I believe that he's trying to discern what would be the age of this newborn king. And as, as we'll see in the following verses, uh, sorry to rock your um, nativity display at home, uh, they were not there at the uh, manger scene. Uh, in fact, the, it's very likely that it took them around two years to get ready and to make this journey, and that's what would have informed King Herod, as we'll see next week, sadly, to target all children two years and younger in Bethlehem. 
So that likely would have been their response of when the star appeared. One writer says the Magi were seeking the king, but Herod was afraid of the king and wanted to destroy him. I think that Herod's insane attempts to stop God's coronation of his anointed Christ and king, as we will see next week, as I mentioned, this insane attempt is similar to the devil's attempts at stopping the reign of Christ, as we'll see in the end times one day. So in summary, we see these searchers arrive at the government center of Judea looking for the king of the Jews, expecting him to be anticipated by his own people. Instead, they find a king who's clinging to his earthly throne that he doesn't deserve. And they find religious counselors that are concerned about the arrival of the one they claim to worship. They have no concern about it. And what should have been seen as a time to repent and seek their Savior is treated like opposition research of how to keep him from taking over. And the undeserving king seeks to protect himself from the rule of the rightful king. If there had been three kings that came into Jerusalem, they should have departed to Bethlehem as four kings with Herod going along with him. But that doesn't happen. Sadly, Herod's determination to keep his tiny crown caused him to miss Christ's eternal rule. Don't make the same mistake. Don't make the same mistake. Psalm 2 reminds us that all earthly rulers are just managing Jesus' stuff. Be wise and recognize this. You can read in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The kings of the earth might rage against the king of kings, but there's no point in it. You know, as I was preparing this message sitting in my in-law's home this past week, I looked up on the wall. And there's a sign. And it defined life. It said life. The time God gives you to determine how you spend eternity. Life is the time that God gives us to determine how we will spend eternity. And that question is based on what we do with Jesus Christ. Whether or not we just see him as a man or we just see him as somebody that we got to just put up with in our culture or we see him for who he is, the King of Kings who came to be our Savior and our Lord. 
How you respond to Jesus defines how you will spend eternity. And looking at ourselves in light of the people involved in this passage, I want to ask you two questions. First of all, whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you living for? The psalmist admits with joy in the Lord. In Psalm 84, verse 10, a day in your courts speaking to the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The doorkeeper out at the gate, shivering in the cold. It's better to be there in the house of God, the ruler of the whole universe, than to be living in the luxury of the tents of the wicked. The question of should Jesus rule in my life is very different than does he rule in my life? Does Jesus rule in your life today? That's where your resolution should be for this year. Jesus, if Jesus is ruling in your life, you look at everything in your bank accounts as being his, given to you to manage for his purposes. If Jesus is ruling in your life, you see your conversations as being for the purpose of representing God's grace and truth to that person. If Jesus is ruling in your life, you see your time as his, and you're just working remotely for his kingdom. Mary Slessor, missionary to Nigeria in the late 1800s, Put it this way, I am on a royal mission. I am in service to the king of kings. What king do you live in service to? I'd rather be a servant of the king of kings than imagine that I am a king of my tiny world that I'm not really not even a king of. I also want to ask you, how do you respond to the truth of God's word. How sad it is to see these religious rulers that are only concerned about their political positioning, that are only concerned about their own comfort, to just say with academic accuracy, oh, okay, Messiah is supposed to be born over there. Instead of stopping and thinking, wait a second, why are you asking? Are you telling us the Messiah has been born? Let's go and worship him. It's amazing to me that their truth is regarded, regarding their Christ was treated like opposition research rather than like a treasure map to find their promised redeemer. Warren Wiersbe says, The Magi were seeking the king. Herod was opposing the king. And the Jewish priests were ignoring the king. These priests knew the scriptures and pointed others to the Savior. But they would not go to worship him themselves. They quoted Micah 5.2, but didn't obey it. They were five miles from the very Son of God, yet they did not go to see him. Yet these Gentiles sought and found him, but his own people, the Jews, did not. You're responding rightly to the truth of God's word. If you find joy in his forgiveness in Christ and his promised presence with his children. 
meaning you find joy in being here together. Because where two or more are gathered, he is here in our midst when we are gathered in his name. You're responding rightly to the truth of God's word if you see obedience to his commands as the opportunity to love him with all your heart and mind and strength. You long to know his will for you and see with his understanding and think with his wisdom. Well, second point I want you to see here is to worship King Jesus with joyful sacrifice. We see that after listening to the king, these wise men went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I I think this star, I believe, I I side with the writers that, that believe this must have been some sort of supernatural phenomena rather than some cosmic combination of planets and stars and things, uh, we, we see that it rose once again and went before them. And it rested over the place where Jesus was. It couldn't have been more than, the estimate is, it, it could not have been higher than about a mile off the surface of the earth if they were to be able to decipher between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. With them being so close together geographically, Yet it directed them to a very house in Bethlehem. The wise men rejoiced when they saw it. Apparently it kind of came and went, reappearing again after their meeting with Herod. So at the age of Jesus here, he's described as being a child as opposed to being described as the baby in chapter 1. Uh, where he's born in a manger. And we see also here that these wise men are described as going to the house where the child was, rather than the stable. Once again, they're getting there within two years of his birth, the idea is. But most important to our point is they brought what's said as their treasures. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gifts that were given to, would be given to a king. Royal possessions, these are described. This is, this is partly why they are understood, and maybe not rightly so, as being three kings. Because the gifts that they brought were typically possessions of kings, of great value. A little bit of research. I have no idea how somebody established this, but according to uh, financial d- data of that day and age, the the value of these gifts would have been enough to purchase around 880,000 acres of land in the Judean countryside. And we'll learn next week about Jesus being whisked away by his parents to Egypt. 
And these gifts are likely how they were able to live there for two years. God their Father providing for the vulnerable God the Son in his physical state. We'll read and learn from Jesus the King throughout the Gospel of Matthew of what the kingdom of heaven is like. The, the, the wise men are illustrating for us what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, giving us two comparisons, when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So he's, he's so grateful to go and surrender everything that he has just to buy this field in his joy. And Jesus tells us that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the kingdom that this king brought to inaugurate and bring to this earth. He also tells us in the same chapter, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These magi illustrate for us how the birth of the king, as, as they knew the king of the Jews, as we know as being the king of all kings, was worth a two-year journey just to get there and to lay before his feet their treasures and to do so with joy. In thinking about how we should be also worshiping Jesus with joyful sacrifice, I'm asking you, what is the state of your heart when you draw near to Jesus? What is the state of your heart when you draw near to Jesus? These wise men weren't just excited because they were happy to be finally done with this journey and maybe get rid of this heavy, you know, chest of gold. They realized that Jesus, being the king of the Jews, was worth getting excited about. We have this tendency to separate loving God and obeying him. But, but think about this. Jesus tells us, as we will see in Matthew 22, <clears throat> he tells us, he summarizes all of what it means to obey God in his commands as loving him with all of ourselves. And conversely, if you ever want to know what does it look like to love God, it means obeying him. As he tells us in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We treat so often like obedience like it's our duty to carry out what we can't see when we can't seem to muster up the feelings. We treat loving God like we're supposed to have our heart invested in it and it's not about duty. But it's both. To love God is to obey Him. The summary of obeying Him is loving Him. 
The fact is that love and obedience are intended to define each other. What does it look like to love God? Obey Him. Why should we obey God? Out of love for Him. I hope that in 2023, God gives you a greater understanding of what it means to have your joy made complete by loving and obeying your Savior. Both of these aspects, love and obedience, should mark a follower of Christ. And lastly, I want to ask you here, what does it cost you to worship Jesus? What does it cost you to worship Jesus? Do you deny yourself any earthly pleasure of comfort or fulfillment because of Christ being your Lord and your King? Do you joyfully feel the pinch of sacrifice because of anything you've invested in God's kingdom and therefore no longer possess for yourself? What gets in the way of you offering your worship in our corporate gatherings on Sundays? <clears throat> I know that this is mean on New Year's. Not mean, but you know, it's, what, it's when the Lord laid it on my heart to bring about, talk about it. And I know in some ways it's, you know, this is like, I'm not picking on anybody that's not here this morning. But there are some Christians, I want to say, that just seem to regularly have something that pops up on Sundays. That it's like, man, there we are in a conflict again. Like, you know, we got to do this instead. Whereas there's others that it's like those things just never seem to pop up. You know what the difference is, folks? The difference is, is that some just never let that spot on their weekly calendar be taken up by something else. And surprisingly, there just seems to be no competition with it. What gets in the way of you offering your worship in our corporate gatherings on Sundays? The wise men prepared and traveled for up to two years to come and worship Jesus. Puts me to shame. What lengths do you go to worship him? <clears throat> you know, I'm very excited about 2023. I'm excited partly because I believe God has led us into the gospel of Matthew. I believe that God has led us here as Jesus proclaims his kingdom, as Jesus proclaims what it means that he is the king of kings and that he has inaugurated his kingdom on this earth. That I believe for us individually, as well as as a body of believers, that we are going to come back to that question over and over again. What does it look like for Jesus to reign in my life, in my family, in this congregation? I'm excited, men, for us as we, as we go to this men's uh, retreat. And, and I hope some of you that are probably still considering, I hope you'll join us. You still can. I, I'm, I'm excited about the focus of our speaker who spends his life, his life is spent helping men and women to better Seek out and understand what does it mean for Jesus to lead me 
today. For me to walk in obedience to the living Jesus today. I believe that God has set us up really to to grow in this understanding for this year. And I'm excited to go that to get through that together with you as we learn to submit ourselves to King Jesus regularly for his glory and for our good together. Let's bow our heads.